0: Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A huge explosion of fire for John Forrest. The car exploded going through the lights and this is as bad a fire as we... On this episode, we're joined by Jim Yates and by Johnny West, two guys bringing education to Pro Stock and Nitro. It's going to be Tim Wilkerson! Wilkerson goes 391-2! We're going to get you up to speed on everything going on inside the world of NHRA Camping World Drag Racing. Perfect reaction time for Dan! triple zeros across the top of the time slip and at the finish line stripe it's dallas glad this is the nhra insider it's Cruz pentagon 395 8, 324 miles an hour a margin of victory of 26 thousands of a second. Hey, everybody. Brian Lones here with another episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. Thanks for tuning in again as we continue on through our 2022 NHRA Camping World Drag Racing Series season. We have a bit of a break here, of course. Uh, we know that we had that couple of weeks off between Vegas and... And Houston. Then we go back to back, Houston to Charlotte, a week off, and then Virginia. So because this is a non-race week, I wanted to explore uh, kind of a different subject and something that's been intriguing me for a while in the world of NHRA Camping World Drag Racing, which is this idea of people who are kind of educators in the sport. And by that, I mean two guys, Jim Yates and Johnny West. For Jim Yates, obviously, the guy's a multi time world champion in the Pro Stock Eliminator in 96 and 97, and he's been a crew chief for more than a decade now, and that's really been his primary role. Now, the work he has done with Camry Caruso and her team has been spectacular so far this season. They've racked up some round wins, and they're looking like they are certainly a, a team that can go out and win a race, and it's certainly a team that is maturing week in and week out. And for Johnny West, of course, we know his MO as he has become uh, basically the the go-to guy for teams who are looking to organize their program, to get their program straightened out, and to kind of take that next step forward, to go from being a car that is simply at the racetrack to a car that is capable of qualifying and maybe even going some rounds. And we've seen that with Rob Passy over the course of this 2022 season, most notably. But Johnny's been at it for a very long time. And I want to talk to him about his history in drag racing and this role that he has come to to be known for now and has been over the last several years and you know it's a interesting thing i think when we look at you know this theory that a rising tide raises all the ships up right this idea that we have all these you know new teams and new cars showing up uh we have great fields in pro stock we have great fields really across the board uh so far in 2022 and it doesn't really show any signs of of letting up anytime soon um it seems to me that Part of why we're having this kind of, I don't want to say renaissance, but certainly why we're having this influx of, of great competition is because of guys like Yates and because of guys like Johnny West. And the reality of the situation is uh, when you have more cars showing up, you have more incentive to perform better. And when you are starting a team, as as Camry Caruso and her family have done, along with Eric Latino and the entire Titan Motorsports family, you um, you need to have the right help to get things off the ground. And, and they chose Jim Yates, which certainly seems to be the right move. So, you know, it's going to be about talking to these two guys kind of about their histories and how their histories have allowed them to uh, evolve into these, um, I don't want to say Yoda-like roles, but into these kind of educational and 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 roles that help people get better on a week-to-week basis. With Jim, it's concentrating on one team. And with Johnny, he uh, he typically has multiple things going on along with his own business, Wesco Fabrication, along with his own fuel-altered, the Plan A machine, and we're going to talk about all that. Of course, Houston is looking good in terms of car counts. We are full in all of our uh, pro categories, minus pro stock motorcycle. I think we're going to get close there. I'm not sure if we're going to get 16, but we will be close to full in pro stock motorcycle. We have a bumper crop of top fuel cars with 18. Right now, we have 16 funny cars pre-registered, and there's still uh, the better part of a week to get onto that registration sheet. So we'll be following that situation uh, really over the course of the next few days. Um it's been a little bit quiet in the world of NHRA drag racing since we left the racetrack in Vegas. There hasn't been a lot of, you know, big moves announced. There hasn't been a lot of big changes announced. Uh, and and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we're starting to see a little bit of, of normalcy settle in. Maybe we're starting to see a little bit of stability settle in. And You know, that stability in in top fuel really doesn't exist in terms of, um, you know, who's established himself as a championship leader. We have had as many winners as we have had races in the top fuel category held so far this year. So that continues to be a great story. Nitro Funny Car is separating itself at the moment into about a three or four horse race with Caps, Hagen and Height being the first three. And, you know, we've seen certainly strong runs made by other cars. But when it comes down to the first four races of the year, uh, it, it's been those three names really kind of putting on the biggest headlines and, and making the biggest headlines in pro stock. Uh, it, it is similar to the top fuel situation in that uh, you have a Stanfield out there. You have Aaron Enders out there. You have karetsky out there. You have Anderson, who's been lagging. We expect him to show up. And, um, you know, the Dallas Glenn, of course. So, Uh, even Mason McGahey has been making waves. We did a Skype with Mason last week. That'll be airing uh, across NHRA's social media this week. And it was just fun to talk to him, fun to talk to how him to how he's been evolving as a driver in the seat and how he has been, um, I don't want to say getting more comfortable, but certainly getting more accustomed to having later days on Sundays than simply leaving after the first round. All of this is great stuff. And, you know, we look at this, this NHRA spring nationals in Houston, of course, it is being built, and, and likely is the last time we will go there for a spring nationals as that racetrack has, uh, it was sold several years ago and has been operating under lease. And if you have ever been to the racetrack in Baytown, you know that over the last several years, what has happened there is the construction of, I mean, huge warehousing facilities. We're talking, you know, million plus square foot buildings, or at least they appear to be that way when you drive down the road. And as that expansion continues, the ground underneath the racetrack is owned by one of uh, the 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 builders, if you will, of those warehousing facilities. So will we go back? You know, there is some talk about the track opening up in twenty three for some events. Will ours be one of it? It's very difficult to mention, very difficult to say. Uh, It would be awesome to speculate that we will, but I'm not here to get anybody's hopes up. The reality is we're going into this believing it's the last one. And the better chance than not, it is the last one we'll have down there. So, uh, the other, you know, kind of weird thing I mentioned it as I made the show last week, and, and it's been an amazing thing to, to kind of have the, the week long, um, follow up on is this, this Howard Stern thing that happened last Wednesday where, um, Uh, Ronnie the limo driver was talking about his experience going to the Las Vegas four wide nationals and, and he was talking about a TV interview he did and I picked up the phone and called the show and uh, made it on the air and was able to speak to Howard for several minutes and it has been astonishing. I have never uh, been involved in anything uh, media wise outside of our own races where I have heard from people that I have not spoken to in 15 years Uh, hitting me up saying, I heard you on Howard. I mean, my neighbors, literally people that live across the street or next door to me, uh, heard the show, Uh, local racers, uh, professional level racers. And again, friends, family, people from outside the sport of drag racing. uh, It's been unreal. And to me, it um, it's it's just it's just crazy. It, It has absolutely been crazy. And it speaks to the size of the guy's audience. I mean, the amount of Um, Again, personal feedback I've gotten via social media or just my own telephone itself has been just far and away beyond anything i would have ever expected so that was a cool thing uh howard on monday of this week i'm making a show on tuesday uh howard brought it up again and they read you know they read some fan mail some fan emails talking about ronnie being at the drag races so for nhra uh it was a pretty big you know pretty big win i would say and i don't say that on a personal level i say that on a level for the sport where um more people heard the letters NHRA and more people heard about drag racing in this non-traditional venue than they have heard about it for a very long time. So that was great and um, certainly something that will uh, long live in my memory banks as a guy who, again, has listened to that show since I was in high school. It was uh, beyond surreal to, to be on there and, and to have a real chat with Howard. I mean, that was the other thing that was cool, too. It wasn't simply just recounting a story and then hanging up and leaving. It was a it was a back and forth encounter. So, you know, we look at this preparation for Houston. We know it's a sea-level racetrack. Uh, Historically, you know, the weather is never as good as we saw in Gainesville, and that may be a good thing for the teams because of the fact they'll have a lot of data to work on. It's a place NHRA has been traveling for many years. I would encourage you to check in every day on NHRA.com because Phil Burgess is running a kind of a top ten moments over the history of the racetrack down there in Baytown, Texas. So, um it's a fun retrospective and it's a fun retrospective that you can check in on every day and, and kind of have another tidbit of history and another tidbit of information. We have a, a bunch of media stuff going on this week. The uh, pre-sale for the event is absolutely off the charts. You know, some internal phone calls and meetings have been had on that fact. Uh, it, it is certainly appearing as though uh, this will be a Saturday guaranteed, Sunday guaranteed. Friday, better than average chance that we're talking about sellout crowds all three days. And I say that uh, with a a point of pride. Obviously, it's a bittersweet thing to talk about. It would be better if we were going going there for another 10 years. But um, one of the things I I guess I would just simply mention, if you are going to attend this race, uh, do not plan on sleeping in. Uh, I think that the smartest people in the known universe right now are those that have camping spaces at the facility because – uh, I know I will be getting there at O'Dark Thirty every day because you know getting in and out of the place is uh, you know it's a two lane road and it's uh, tough traffic management at times because you have so many people flooding in and out tens of thousands of people. It's going to be even another level beyond that this year. So make sure if you're attending the the Spring Nationals in Houston just right now. Uh, vow to yourself that you will not sleep in because if you try to get in that racetrack around the qualifying session if you try to get there on sunday around first round i don't know where you're going to park i don't know what time you're going to get in the gate but i do know that you're not going to see first round probably at all so get there early you know tailgate with your buddies in the parking lot uh jump in somebody's camper if, if if you know somebody that's staying there see if you can angle a space in their in their camping area but um it really is going to be one for the books, and I can't wait to get down there and and have our fifth race of the season. It's going to be something else. So that all being said, I think what we need to do now is uh, is transition into our first guest, and you know this um this conversation with Jim Yates, which is obviously pre recorded. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you to it right now. Is great. Um, I say that because Jim is enlightening on a, on a lot of elements of pro stock. He's enlightening about you know his own career and his own methods of of teaching and education and how they've evolved over the years. And you need to stick around to the end of this one, one, so you can listen to the Johnny West interview. But two, because we discuss what I believe is the greatest, and then actually what it, what ends up becoming the two greatest single round whole shot victories in pro stock history dating back to the 1994 season it involves jim yates daryl alderman and of course the unsinkable buster couch now that i've teased you with that let's move on with the conversation all right so our first guest in this episode of the nhra insider podcast a guy who is a two-time nhra pro stock world champion in 1996 and 97 25-time national event winner mr jim yates how you doing sir
1: I'm awesome today. How you doing?
0: I'm doing great, Jim, and I appreciate you taking some time because, uh, you know, to me, one of the great stories of this season so far has been, you know, the emergence of this, this Caruso family team, the Titan Racing Engine's power, and, of course, your role working with Camry Caruso and the team to kind of get things off the ground, and it seems to be going pretty well from my vantage point.
1: Oh, I, it's, it's, it's been going awesome. I mean, just like you would have drawn it up in the offseason, uh, Camry has made such progress as a driver, and we're really excited because we've got great power from Titan. I mean, those guys are doing a great job. Uh, Mike Smith and and uh, Stevie John, they got plenty of horsepower, and it's just a matter of me trying to get it to the track. And Camry doing a good job of driving the car. And, you know, she's doing the, the, the tremendous part is her ability to drive the car right now. I mean, pro stock cars are a handful, and they're you know they're very. Specifically, touchy machinery that that you know you have to shift them just on time. You got to keep them in the groove. You can't be yanking them around. You know they're not like a funny car or, sure. or a pro mod. You know they're they're, they're more of a finesse car. Uh, and she just amazes me every time she gets behind the wheel. Uh, going down the track. I mean, Gainesville was a, a, a real eye opener to me when we put her out there on that night run Saturday night on a cold track, and she went right down there. But, went 651 <laughs> yeah pretty incredible with all that stress on her you know that, 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 okay this is one qualifying shot. you gotta do it let's make it happen
0: and she did which is a, I'm sure a great confidence builder not just for her but really for everybody
1: oh it makes me feel confident I could put her out there that's one of those situations and there's very few of them that I've been in, in in recent years where I said you know I think I'd rather be in the car yeah you know I'd rather be the guy behind the wheel because I've got a lot of experience going A to B um, and you know, when you put them on a touchy track like that and it's cold and it's going to be extremely fast and, uh, she went out there and just, man, she just did a great job of driving the car and, and that she continues to impress me, you know, every weekend with something she does. And, and it's just, it's, it's awesome because it kind of gives you a good outlook for the future. You can't, you can't wait till tomorrow because every, every weekend. You know, there's something new comes up, and she does a great job of it, and you're like, okay, okay. Now, what what you going to do this weekend? You know,
0: you know. Have they always been this way in terms of you know, in terms of that 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 knife edge, that that really finite like, kind of line between good and oh no, this is going horribly. In, in terms of a pro stock car, were they more forgiving years ago or no?
1: Well, certainly with the with this new hard limiter at ten thousand five hundred. You know, I mean, uh, we, we tend six out of them, you know, occasionally, uh, but I mean, it's just really hard to get that shift just there. Yeah. And if you go over it 20 RPMs, the motor starts missing and it upsets the chassis and you don't have to abort the run, but it definitely puts a uh, a, a damper on how fast the car is going to run. Used to be if you were shifting in the car at 10, six, okay and you were to over-rev it, you know, 100 RPM to 10.7, it might lay over a little bit, but it wouldn't hit that chip like it does now, okay? Right now, with that mandated uh, rev limiter, when you go over the 10.6 the number, it just, the motor stops running. Yeah. And the, and the car lays down, and... Then when you shift it, it takes off again, and it, it upsets the chassis.
0: Yeah, you're transferring weight sh- forward and backward, right? The thing hits the limiter, puts the driver mm-hmm. in the belts basically, and then you wheel the next gear, and it's trying to climb up on its hind legs again.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and what happens is if and if you shift it early, you know you can if you shift it hundred early, you're really killing it because you you bring the motor back so many RPM on the other side of the gear change, okay? Which is where we suffer. It's on the bottom. After the gear change, how hard we pull the car back to the engine back. Like, if you pull it back to 8,400, uh, cause you shifted it at 10,4, it's gonna run a lot different than if you shipped it at 10,5,95 and pull the motor back to 8,600, for instance. Okay. So you, you can't just shift it early to get around that. You know, you have kinda gotta kinda get it as close to 10,6 as you can. And, uh, so, so you're really in a fine spot. But used to in the old days, it never it wasn't that critical. Sure, but but right now we're trying to get everything we can out of the engines, and we've got the power band, you know, kind of shrunk up a little bit on them. So you want to keep them right in that narrow power band, and, and uh, if you if you make a mistake, you know, you just it just definitely hurts the ET, and and I'm just uh, you know really surprised at how what a great job Camry has done trying to try to get as close to that. Ten six number without going over it and not short shifting it.
0: You know you've worked with with so many drivers since you kind of transitioned into the crew chief role about you know ten or eleven years ago. And one of the things I'm interested in is is Jim Yates when he first became a crew chief, like primarily a crew chief in that 2010 2011 time frame. Would he be as good a teacher now? As would you have been a good as good a teacher then as you are now in terms of working with a driver who was totally green to a pro stock car? as as far as this winter goes in terms of camry
1: no absolutely not i mean back then i didn't have the patience that i have today yeah. you know it's one thing when you're used to running your own program and driving your own car and being you know king of your own castle you're you know you don't uh, you don't have a lot of patience with with uh with with accepting things a different way um uh, sure. And my, my first gig as a as a crew chief was working with Johnny Gray and Shane Gray. You know, and, and Johnny Johnny's a pretty demanding guy. You know, he Johnny Johnny's got his way, and uh, he's been pretty successful at it, so you don't really question him <laughs> that much. But but I mean, it's hard to adapt to that. But I got I got a pretty good I probably got a pretty good education under Johnny, and then and then Shane, and and um and we did really good with Shane. I mean, you know, Shane, yeah. we did, uh, Shane had driven cars. And he, had, they had a like a pro street uh, Nova, I think they had that they drove with a stick in it. And I mean, by the end of the year, Shane was he finished number four hundred points that year. We won Pomona and had a really good year. I'd say a, good, a very successful year with Shane, but. Um, my my teaching pattern is a lot different today than it was back then.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting kind of how that perspective changes over the years right and, and kind of how you you kind of learn and see and, and I'm sure you've become more in tune with with kind of recognizing people's tendencies and, and maybe how people learn over the time you've been working really specifically with drivers and and of course uh, you know being the kind of chassis guru that you are. well it's
1: it's different today than it was then because you know when, when you're you know Shane was older, and he's a guy and you can kind of be hard on him yeah. and and you know it, it's, it's a different uh, relationship than you have with say for instance a Grace Howell or a Camry okay whereas you're dealing with a girl and they're young you know they're, I mean, Camry's young she's only she was 23 when we started this thing um, and that's young especially when you're 68 like I am uh, <laughs> relatively young but it's young in, in years and in, in, uh, trying to relate to a person that young takes a different mentality, and especially to a, to a young lady like Camry, um, where you're trying to re- yeah you have to reason with them. You just can't tell them do it this way because it's my way. You know you have to explain it to them, and and she has a really good understanding of mechanically what's going on with the car, and that's what I try to. That's probably my biggest difference today in my training method is I spend more time explaining to her the reasoning behind what we're doing gotcha and she appreciates that because and i keep telling her we're gonna you're gonna know every part on this car you're gonna understand every part that makes this car run and that's going to help you be a better driver because you'll understand what a line lock is okay and what a sway bar is and what a four link is uh and the more she understands that then the more she'll be able to relate back to me when she's going down the track or when she has an issue, what the problem was.
0: One of the things I think is very interesting, and, and it has to be on your end as well, is you know for a fan, a Pro Stock car looks like a Pro Stock car. If you, if you put a 99 Firebird next to a, next to a 2022 Camaro, yeah, the body shape is different, but people look inside and just see a bunch of tubing. Um, how much have things evolved and in what direction have they changed over the course of, let's say, the last 10 years in terms of the technology that you deal with now that you really either didn't have access to then or didn't exist then?
1: Oh shoot the the brakes today are so much better than they were <laughs> 15 years ago. Uh, the the braking system, the suspension, the way the car set up the shock absorbers are, have evolved. There's probably been 10 iterations of rear shocks on these cars in the last 15 years, at least 10. <laughs> wow. They're so much more refined. I mean, and the cost has the cost reflects that. Yeah. Um, they, you know they're they're very uh they've come just a long, long, long way. And the, the technology that's been evolved in the in the shocks and then the struts, the front struts have become, you know, we, we can control so much more on the struts, down track, uh, rebound, down track, compression, uh, starting line, ret- uh, uh, rebound. I mean, so many adjustments can be made today that we couldn't make 15 years ago, which makes the car more, of uh, i'm gonna say easy to drive harder to tune yeah <laughs> that's my problem and easier to drive because the car is more under control going down the track you know the struts have a lot further travel today so the wheels are closer to the ground when you wheel stand so you know they get they get the tires back on the ground quicker so you can steer them um just so many things that the, the, the ge- geometry in the front suspension has evolved um you know, it pro stock is constantly evolving. I've, I know that they've kind of put the hamper on the engine ev- evolution with the rules that they've made in the last five or six years, uh, you know, with the RPM limits yeah. and stuff like that. But there's been no, uh, no dampening on how much we can evolve the chassis and the components that make it up.
0: You know, one of the things that comes along with all that, I guess, is is obviously an increased level of data acquisition and and how, how important, and, and this is one of the things that fascinates me about the crew chief job in that you can drown in all this information, right? You can drown yourself in every data point the car presents itself. So how do you and how have you over the years kind of evolved what you're concentrating most on and what you're looking at? Because obviously it's gone from, you know, in your life, it's gone from looking at a time slip and going, well, we were bad on the 60, let's try this, now to understanding what than 50 RPM, where shifts are happening, and what's going on with the shock absorber. So, how do you not just drown in that information? Well,
1: it's difficult. You know my my background. I'm a mechanical engineer by degree. I mean, so I've got a degree in from a long time ago, and so I'm a numbers guy. I love numbers. Whether it be financial numbers or mechanical engineering type numbers, like designing stuff to make the race car work better and get the car down the track better. And, you know, watching the, the technology evolve over the years, how much data we can get out of the car, okay, from sensors on every aspect of the car, from the clutch linkage to the front struts, to the rear shocks, suspension heights. I mean, we get so much data today that it's, it's great. And it doesn't overwhelm me because you got all week, you know, you, you know, from run to run at a a national event racetrack. Yeah. It's hard to look at all the data, but when you go home and you've got a week, you know, seven days or 14 days or 21 days, like we have this break, it gives you a lot of time to sit down and really uh, delve into it and try to analyze where, you know, you, you take a run from, Gainesville for instance and you start comparing it to a run from Vegas and you see so many different differences um, and, and why why is it different and what caused this and what caused that and you start analyzing it then you come up with a game plan for the next race to try and experiment a little bit to see if you can optimize some of those factors and see if it, if it results in a better ET. It
0: is amazing yeah, and that, that that to me is, is very cool to be able to, to kind of let the car tell you what it wants or let the car tell you what it's doing and then and then try to be able to apply it the next weekend you mentioned gainesville and you know to me pro stock uh, car and pro stock motorcycle really stole the show down there because of the fact that you know the fuel cars as as mighty as they are they really had no idea what what they could and, and should do in those scenarios because of the fact that the air was so weird and everything else whereas Obviously, the naturally aspirated Pro Stock and Pro Stock motorcycle engines were loving every single bit of that air on Sunday. So how far afield was it for you setting the car up on Sunday, or is it simply reading the racetrack and doing what you do and letting the engine guys do what they do?
1: Well, I think that it was evident. You know, you look at how fast Erica ran. I mean, 645, that was fast. But if you ask any Pro Stock guy out there, everybody should have been running that fast, you know. That we had the potential, but with the situation where we only got one qualifying run, yeah, and then you get you know first round of eliminations, and everybody's nervous, and they don't want to throw something out there and have a problem with it, you know, not get down the track. Um, if we had more runs there, you'd have seen the ETs just get better and better. Uh, the fast cars would have been going faster than that, uh, and the average guys would have been going. But but it, with with pro stock, you kind of give it what you can based on how many runs you've got to run. Sure. Uh, I, I like to say that, you know, I race a national event like I play chess. <laughs> okay. okay. you got to plan three or four moves ahead. When I show up at a race on Thursday, I plotted the weather out for the weekend. So you know what run is going to be the fastest run, what the track temperature is going to be based on your histories in the past, okay? And you plan ahead when you walk into Gainesville and it's raining and cats and you don't know if it's going to clear up and when it's going to clear up and how much time you're going to have to make a run. Um, it doesn't give you a lot of opportunity to try to, to yeah,
0: plot figure out moves. a course
1: to make yeah. the fastest ET of your life. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, and I mean, that was the situation there and you know, hats off to a team like the elite team, what they did with Erica's car to get it to run that good. But of course, uh, also, Aaron Stanfield ran really good, I yeah. think, Friday night. Uh, yes, he did. He went a 46 or something, and he went 45-something on Sunday also. So they had a combination run in that weather. You know, with, with us, we had never been in those conditions, and typically what we do, I think this is the answer to the question, is typically we do, we go back to where we've been in those kind of air conditions before, okay? If we're going to, and the correction factor is a 105, correction or a one Oh six or one Oh four. We know we've raced in those conditions. You go back, pull up runs that you've run in those conditions. You know, what kind of gear ratios to run, you know how much clutch you need to run. You put it together. it goes out there and you make a run and then you fine tune it as the weekend goes on. Okay. When you get to, to Gainesville and the correction factor is one flat and you've got, uh, 70, 80 more horsepower than you've ever had (laughs) in a national event. You're like scratching your head. Okay. Uh, you know, for me, I can calculate. Okay, I'm going to take X amount of gear out of it to get the power down to where we can control it. But you know, you're not you're not pushing the envelope at that point. You're just slowing the car down and and getting it under control to go down the track. And then as you you make a run, then you can you know then you can tickle it a little bit and try to find a little you know put a little more power to the ground and see if the, if the chassis in the in the track will take it. Um, and that's the beauty of it, you know, just trying to find the best combination based on your records and then put it, put it to work on the track and then evolve it as the weekend goes on.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a very systematic approach, and and one last question I had for you, and this isn't really a question, it's a story that you and I have discussed before. But you mentioned the chess game of drag racing, and and kind of needing to really plot moves before you actually make them. Um, to me, it's the greatest whole shot win in Pro Stock history, 1994. You and Daryl Alderman, uh, Buster Couch tried to red light you and failed, and I I. I I know I know the story, and you certainly know the story because you lived it, but I really want everyone to hear this because it is, to me, you watched the video of this, and you went up there with a plan against a guy who had a significant performance advantage over you, and you executed in a way that probably nobody else has ever done in history.
1: Well, you, you got to understand, back then, the Dodgers were outrunning us probably by a tenth of a second. Huge amount, okay? yeah. And Daryl would never give up anything on the starting line, no matter how fast his car was. He was a very astute driver. I mean, he was aggressive. He he was but he also and you have to take advantage of that. That's the beauty back then. Okay. When we would go to the starting line, there would be three people on the starting line. You, Daryl Alderman, and Buster Couch. Okay. <laughs> and you had to know Buster. And you had to you know Buster had a personality. Daryl had a personality, and Jim's got a personality. So, and and I, because we didn't have the performance level at that point in time, and we were just starting, we were working with Mask, and it was the beginning of our, our thing there, okay? So, we didn't have the performance level, so we had to take advantage of all those things. And knowing that Buster, Buster loved Daryl, okay? Good old Southern boy, they got along great, you know? and And, and so, you had to know that Buster was going to look out for Daryl. OK, so I go up there and I got to run Daryl. And by then they didn't have the auto start.
0: Correct. It was okay. all on his switch.
1: Yeah, it's all on Buster's switch. Right. So you roll up there and, and Daryl was not the kind of guy that said, hey, I got the faster car. I'm just going to go in here, light the lights and we'll race. OK, Daryl had an ego. And Daryl was very good at what he did. Okay. I'm not knocking him <laughs> at all. Uh, he would never just give you a head start. He was going to leave with you. No matter how fast his car was, he was going to try to leave on you every time he raced you. So we go up there. We light the first, well, we sit around for a little bit and then we finally get the first light on. They were sitting there and they will not put the second light on. And I will not put the second light on. So finally we have a little burn down, right? And finally Daryl puts the second light on. Well, I'm sitting there, and I go, like, okay, uh, as soon as I roll in, Buster's going to have the tree on, okay? Buster's knowing what's going to happen, and Buster's (laughs) going to try, and Buster's going to give Daryl the advantage, because Daryl's been sitting there. When I roll in, I'll be flat-footed. And he can he can give Daryl the advantage, right? So I waited and waited and waited, and I got. I mean, I, I got to admit, I got lucky. But I mean, I pushed the limit. I was going my full seven seconds, whatever they'd allow. And you know, Dar- Buster was not going to give me the full seven seconds. He was <laughs> right. going to cut me short. Okay, he was he was because he was you know he liked Daryl. He yeah. thought he, he had a lot of respect for Daryl, and Daryl was a straight up racer. Daryl would never play no games. And at that point in my career, with the performance we had, I had to play games sure. to win rounds. Okay. Um, so anyway, I waited till the very last second and, and when I rolled in, I rolled in and I had, and I knew what was going to happen. I knew the tree was going to come on right away. I didn't realize it would come on quite that quick. Okay. <laughs> but I knew the tree was going to be on like instantly. And I rolled in and as soon as I rolled in, I was on the chip. And fortunately for me, Buster had the tree on right away and I was gone and Daryl was still sitting there. He didn't even know what was going on. You know, he was taken by surprise that uh as soon as i staged the tree came on and he, and he was way late way late and i got down there and i, I think he got ran me over a tenth of a second yes. to the finish line and you know the good part about racing got a guy was you get to the finish line you get out of the car and you're putting your hat on and daryl comes over and shakes your hand and you say he's just laughing he thought it was the funniest thing he ever seen because he he was like he was a competitor and and went for that to happen to him he knew you know he he was he was very uh he, he wasn't mad he wasn't like angry or anything at all you know he wasn't, he was just like laughing and shook my hand and it was all over it was done yeah and the, the funniest part is very next week we go to Brainerd okay we're in Brainerd and I gotta race him again in the semifinals <laughs> and same thing but a whole different scenario this time you know he gets in a burn down with me thinking that I'm gonna burn down burn down burn down. And I as soon as he started rolling forward, I rolled forward with him and staged on top of him. So both stage lights came on at the same time. And he was thinking that I was going to sit over there for another seven seconds.
0: Oh, man.
1: Mentally, okay. And, of course, Buster was right in the middle of the whole thing. had the tree on instantly. (laughs) And I left on a tenth of a second again and beat him. Again, back-to-back races by a tenth.
0: I didn't realize that it happened twice in a
1: row absolutely and that's we ended up winning Brainerd. that was my very first win after beating daryl in the semifinals
0: that is freaking awesome
1: Uh, it's great it was hey i never caught him by surprise like that again (laughs) (laughs) daryl believed in the old fool me once you know shame shame on you fool me twice shame on me you can't use the same trick on them, and I didn't. You know, you can't use the same trick on them back to back weeks. But uh, anyway, it was it was fun. It was a lot of fun back then, and I'd like to see that become more of the, the norm in pro stock. You and me
0: both. Yeah, you and me the both.
1: Drivers. I'm not talking about the two three minute burndowns, downs. I'm talking about the, the just the little jack around things to kind of get the fans excited because pro stock we got the most personalities we have the most ability to excite the fans with the cars and by the most, doing that kind of stuff
0: and the most youth i mean you look at the drivers in this category there are so many kids in there now that it's amazing
1: yeah quit bringing that up <laughs> <Holy cow. laughs> they, they scare me they're so good i mean you look at the drivers we got out there today that uh, I mean, i'd mean, i hate to be behind the wheel racing on sunday i like to qualify but i don't know if i'd like to go out there on sunday and have to run against them young kids i mean they're just incredible and and i mean that's what brings excitement is is the fans can get behind these these kids yeah and hopefully that brings more youth into the sport as far as from a spectator side For seeing sure. these young you know 20 year olds out there competing and kicking butt on on the on the world champions and and winning races
0: no, it's a great thing, man. I'm glad that uh, I'm glad you're in the thick of it. I'm glad that the uh, the season has started uh, with great success for a, you know, for a quote-unquote fresh operation. It's, uh, it's been impressive to watch. And, you know, every one of these round wins that Camry gets uh, certainly puts another, you know, little bit of confidence into her and certainly helps the team move forward. So, Jim, I, I certainly appreciate you taking the time today. Great insight. And, uh, man, I love the Alderman story. It's fantastic.
1: <laughs> it was fun to live. It's even funner to talk about it.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Jim.
1: The results were good.
0: All right, so our second guest in this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast is a guy that we see at the racetrack basically every week. We just don't typically see him with the same team. He is Johnny West. Johnny, how you doing, man?
2: I'm doing great. Loving the weather here in Phoenix and just enjoying life right
0: now. You're at West Coast Fabrication World Headquarters down there, which is your business in Arizona. And I guess the first question is, how's business?
2: Uh, you know, it's always going to – it's been the same for – 20 years now it's not going to be a million dollar a year business but it's enough to support me and my family and you know we're just putzing away on a lot of support stuff for the race car teams
0: and that's one of the things i want to first touch on is the fact that you know we're going to get into your mechanical knowledge and background but but you manufacture a lot of parts that are used on a lot of these cars talk about some of the things that uh, that you actually work on and, and have created i guess down there at wesco
2: well, you know, just in, in as much as the support tooling that guys just, you know, some of the other manufacturers or some of the other places, you can't produce enough of them to make a living off of any one single item. So what we've kind of concentrated on ever since I started making the stuff back in the seventies was just support stuff, tooling to put your motor together with that nobody else really wants to do because there's not a lot of, not a lot of uh, money margin in it, you know, so. And that just kind of turned into a a pretty good little sideline business for me, just making that stuff, let alone when I came back from Indianapolis after working with some of the other guys out there. You know, I took over the JT Stewart Company, which makes all the barrel valves, fuel systems for 99% of the big show funny car and top fuel cars. And now in the last five or six years, we're breaking into the Nostalgia Funny Car stuff with some of our barrel valve stuff there. Uh, Cannons, you know, clutch controllers for the big show cars, you know, high gear only. That were the only ones that have been successfully making it and supporting all these guys. So, you know, within those few items, and it just bleeds off onto a lot of other small stuff.
0: And, and to me, you know, th- this is why you're such a valuable guy in this sport beyond the reasons we'll get to. But, you know, when when you're able to actually be on the engineering and manufacturing side of some of these parts and pieces, you intrinsically have to know how they work. Right. I mean, <laughs> there's no there's not you can't guess and make this stuff correctly.
2: Well, you know, when, when somebody out there in the field has a little bit of a hiccup, especially when I'm out there with them or at the races like right now, I'm helping Lagana and. And Richard Hogan on the top fuel car with uh, Billy Torrance. So that gets me out in the field where if guys have any questions or if there's something they want to do to one of these other parts, can we do it? You know, at least on there right then to be able to answer a question for them or, or walk them through what's going on with the part.
0: And and that's kind of leads us to the topic I really want to get to. And and we had a segment on our show. Jamie Howe interviewed you and and Rob Passy, and and talked about the work you had done with that team. And and this is something you've done with a lot of teams now. And to me, it's a very impressive thing because. When you work with these teams, these are not the uh, you know these are not the rich guys with the the bottomless pockets. These are pretty real world fuel racers, which you have been your whole career. So I want to talk a little bit about that. When when someone picks up the phone and calls Johnny West and says, "Hey, can you give us a hand?" I mean, what's the first question you ask it, or really, what's the first thing you start to survey when you when you get in touch with their operation?
2: <laughs> survey first. I all I do is just ask when and where do you guys need me, and I'll show up and we'll. Start off from just organiza- organization uh, getting their workstations set up to where they don't... What my biggest quest is is to stop them from having to spend 50% of their time looking for something to work on the car. Yeah. yeah time essential is time management, so to speak, is probably essential in any successful operation, let alone top-field funny car. But anything to do, especially
0: with racing on my side... You got to be organized to be able to be efficient with the car. That's where it usually starts, right there. And that's kind of funny because, as you said, this is a bedrock concept, and it's the least sexy thing to talk about when you're talking about a race car—is time management and organization. But ultimately, without that, you are literally nowhere.
2: Well, you know, I've been with a couple other guys. You know, like with uh, Terry, Terry Haddock. He is probably one of the sharpest guys that's in racing right now, let alone the fact that he doesn't have any money to work with, so to speak, but he can solve a problem before he gets to it. So that, you know, with me saying that is that he's got a good head on his shoulders outside of the fact that he doesn't stay organized. And that one, two years that I was with him, the organization started showing once he finally accepted that method, and then we started running consistent all the time and making runs. So then you could see the fruits of how that basis
0: started out. And once we get past organization, it really comes down to the point you made in the interview, which is the thing has to be assembled properly. And one of the things I think maybe people at home don't understand when they watch is that a minor mistake you make when you say set the valve lash on your 400 horsepower small block turns into a complete and utter disaster. If you make that same error on an 11,000 horsepower top fuel engine.
2: See, yeah, well just even starting it up, you know, that's, That's probably one of the biggest things that any fuel racer has to learn is being consistent with any adjustments, any application that you do with these race cars. You can't take them for granted. These things will bite back, and they'll bite back really hard. And then it's going to be so costly, it could almost hurt you. It could hurt you to the point where you're out of business physically to be able to work on the car ever again.
0: And, and, you know, I think you come from a place where these are some lessons that over the course of your time as a racer, you learn some of these lessons the hard way. So I think I'd have to guess in the back of your mind, part of this process is preventing these guys from having to learn those lessons the same way.
2: Well, you know, how, do, how does a guy get the experience or how does a guy get the knowledge to be able to take care of these cars and, and run them? Well, that's because of the failures that I've had. To where I've, I've been fortunate enough not to have it disastrous physically to me, yeah. to where I've learned, hey, this is going to be ugly if I continue doing it like this. So with that, you know, with that knowledge, this is what I try and bring to some of these other guys in helping them understand how important it is to do the job exactly the way it's designed to be done.
0: And what I think so interesting is you mentioned, you know, you're working with the Capco team. You're going to be out there in Houston because Billy, uh, Billy's running the car down there. And, I mean, obviously your role there is your role there is a lot different, or maybe it isn't. Let's talk a little bit about that as far as where you fit in the puzzle of running Billy's car.
2: A lot of it is just being hand-in-hand hand with Richard and Bobby Lagana. Both cars, actually there's four or five cars now that we have as a, have as a clone to Steve's car. So all we're doing is just following format and then making the last few minute calls up there on the starting line, like two pair back. What do we do when we see something different going on with the track? I think that's where Bobby and and Richard have have focused on trying to have me go up there and help as another set
0: of eyes that's not going to stab them in the back a year or so down the road. And that's a thing to consider, too, right? I mean, it, it, you have to be selective, especially at, at their level. you got to be selective with who you're kind of letting in the club. And, and, you know, I don't know how you feel about that being an honor, but to me it certainly seems like it is.
2: Oh, you know, I, I was just I was leveled when, when Bobby called and said, hey, we need you to come back to Indy. We're working on a project, and we want you to come back here for a couple of days before the PRI show. I thought I'd kill two bird, birds with one stone like they had some kind of a, a project that they wanted me to make for them but they wanted to keep this off the phone, just talk one-on-one. I get back there, and he says, okay, here's the deal. We want you to come and help run Billy's car with us. And I was like, <laughs> I, I, <that> was, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> what are we talking about here? You know, I just didn't have any idea this is where they were going. But, you know, talking with Richard quite a bit and Bob, but Richard was his statement was what brought it to me. Is like, well, you're one of the few guys – that I've learned over the last thirty years through our dad is that I can trust you not to hurt me down the road,
0: yeah yeah, and that's uh that's a an amazing thing I mean this is such a small sport in so many ways, and there are so many people who don't learn that lesson or they learn it the hard way, and then we kind of never see them again right and and so you've seen those guys come and go
2: well yeah um. <laughs> You know, as far as I don't even want to call myself as far as a crew chief. I'm more of like a, a firefighter that can see how the fire is going to get begun to start. But you know, you got you just want to look at how these things work and be careful with them and make them produce to the potential of what the car has and or the equity that's inside the trailer. If a guy only has one spare motor, you don't want to go out there and try and run a funny <laughs> car to run three <laughs> eighty flat. <black>. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know. But, with with Torrance, performance is not an issue as far as par, as far as the insurance policies that are in the trader. Nobody, they, that's not a concern of theirs. Their first concern is to make the car productive and perform, and that's that's our point of view right now with the race car.
0: How much value you know does your life experience in this sport you know? And I guess this is a double edged question, but do do you think that? you were a call that they wanted to make because of the respect the guy like Bobby has for you. Bobby knows how you raced. You raced very hard scrabble. You raced smart. You did it the way you could do it. And obviously that's how his family raced for so many years. Is there a is there a built in value in that? I mean it's it's again, that's kind of school of hard knocks mentality that those guys came from as well.
2: Well yeah. Well let alone like with Bobby and myself, you know, back in the seventies and eighties what we earned at the track was our money coming in. Yeah. We didn't have sponsorship money, so we had to learn how to make, make the car produced to where we got paid. Going to a match race like in Cordova, Illinois or Martin, Michigan, or even English town, Epping, those places back at, back east in the Midwest, Kansas City, you had to make your runs to get paid. If you didn't get paid, you didn't have enough diesel to get to the next racetrack. So that's where the real pressure came from. Going to a national event. That was my vacation day. You know, because you didn't have to you didn't have to if I went out there and made one run and parked it and got qualified, I was ready for the weekend. I didn't have to make four qualifying runs. It didn't matter to me. I was just there to make the car run and get some extra cash.
0: Yeah, and it's and it's just crazy how the how the, the kind of sport has evolved where, you know, and, and I think that it's great when we see a series like to me, you see Funny Car Chaos starting to get some traction. I feel like, you know, they're for so many years we lost any alternative venue for people to race a funny car unless you had a you know legal NHRA alcohol funny car or a legal NHRA you know big car or a nostalgia nitro car that was kind of your option and, and I see places like Funny Car Chaos coming up and I, I find it to be a great thing I don't know what your opinion is on that but I do see that this is a very valuable place for people to maybe go cut their teeth a little bit
2: yeah if they want to get out and race and not lose so much money yeah but, you know <laughs> right you know, with, with when Mike and I decided to build the Plan A Fuel Altered again just for a little project car, my, my two objectives was to try and prove how a nostalgia-type fuel car could run high gear only and be productive and still make a little bit of money going out putting out, and having an eight-car qualified fuel, making some money to where you at least break even or pay for the expenses of the car. That's my whole objective, is to try and make that work and still have to where a guy and his best friend and your two wives can run the car three runs in one night and not have to field strip it with seven guys on the race car. So far, it's produced, and now the shows are starting to turn around and be a little bit more fun because it's a full quarter mile racing.
0: Well, it is. It's
2: just I mean, yeah, I, was, yep.
0: I, I was out there in but, Boise last year when you, uh, when you had the plan A car out there and uh, it didn't just run well. I mean, you, you were a number one qualifier coming out of Friday night. You know, this is, uh, this is now, a I would say, a very proven concept.
2: Yeah, well, it's just I would, I've been fortunate to fall, to fall into this combination with the car. But, man, we're just, you know, the traveling part, my wife and I take the truck and trailer and we'll take a couple of days type of thing to get up to Boise. We'll just enjoy the atmosphere the two of us have inside the truck, just being by ourselves with no worries at all. Man, this is where where the fuel racing needs to be. is in that atmosphere towards not 100% pressure all the time. The pressure that I've put on myself, trying to be low qualifier or win every round, that's put on by myself. That's not due to any sponsor or anything like that, but we're still having a blast when she comes down. When she's on the starting line with me and she starts the car, that's the ultimate right there. That's that's your life and that's that's the whole thing to me. That's 100 percent of it.
0: It's amazing. I mean, it's uh, it's a great thing. I, I you know I love uh, Bonneville Salt Flats. I've been going to Speed Week for about a decade now, and and I go out there and and it's your same experience, I guess, with the fuel altered as my experience at Bonneville, where you're out there. Uh, everybody's there kind of on their own program. Everybody's there for only one reason, which is to kind of prove to themselves they can do it or they can't. And it's a cleansing experience to a degree, right? You, you, just like you in the fuel altar, when that thing fires up, it is no, nothing else other than the car that you put together. You're there with your wife, and it is like there's no other kind of outside distraction.
2: Yeah, it's just it's hard to explain the feeling that you get when – You see, you're the person that's involved with the car and with your life out there in front of you, doing her thing to be a part of this. This you can't get any better than that, and that's the real goal. That's the real thing, right there.
0: No, that's fantastic. You know, Jamie wanted me to ask you a question about an anecdote you told her that she really loved, which was uh, in a top-end interview with Steve Evans back in the day, which you um, you kind of broke character and started talking like a different kind of racer.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, this was, I think this was in English town and we got to like third round or something and we're just a mess, you know, and and he asked me, he said, well, talk, me, talk to me about the run because it was a little bit unorthodox and we had to do some work during the run and he, he gets that, uh, you know, he wants to hear what, what was going on, what happened. And that's when I started talking as if I was at Daytona at, at a NASCAR race. And I said, when this part started pushing to the right and it started getting up against the wall, and then I had to bring it back and, you know, started to drip on there a little bit, you know, and I had to stay ahead of Earnhardt and it just wasn't good, it wasn't responding right. And he's like, stop, just stop. What? And he looks to the camera guys like, where in the hell are we? What are we doing? <laughs>
0: Oh, that's fantastic. It is. Uh... <laughs> oh, well, that's a great story. Yeah, I mean, it's... You know,
2: when, when you develop a relationship with a lot of these people that are behind the camera or uh, doing the an- announcing, you know, they get so tied up in what they're trying to do and they just enjoy the relationship that, that you would have with these guys. They learn to enjoy that and learn life, life is not all super serious like that. And we're going to have some fun with this, too. Oh,
0: that's great. Yeah, that is uh, that's a that's a great <laughs> that's a great story. Just to kind of double back to the beginning, what was the first fuel engine you had your hands on?
2: Oh uh, it had to be a Chevrolet. That's why the plan A car, which was an altered, that's where that started was with a blown fuel Chevrolet. You know, we we'd go out and earn money with the altered, match racing it, or running out here on the West Coast mainly with uh, the Nanook car, uh, Linda, Hoth Lynn. She was the organizer of the whole circuit. We would probably race 15 times a year out here on the coast. Well, then when that car generated enough money, then I'd take that motor out of the car and go NHRA national event racing with the dragster. So it was a Chevrolet top fuel car, is what it was for me, or the Plan A fuel. Think, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's neat. And what year was that? What year? What was the last year you were the, in the Chevrolet and, NH, and NHRA competition?
2: Uh nineteen forty eight, I think it was.
0: <laughs>
2: Man. Oh, dude, it had to be it had to be mid mid to early seventies, I would think.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's pretty because cool. Booker was like I know Jim Booker was like pretty much the last guy that really put a number up with the with the big Chevy motor, what seventy four, seventy five or something like that. He set the set the yeah. national record.
2: That's what we were trying to tailor ourselves after it was him because we had Jerry Johansson of Howard's Cam's, helping us with uh, the tune-up numbers of the parts along with Booker because he was really super close to him. Uh, we ended up taking this dragster to Indy, and they weighed it, and they could see that we had a it was road Rodak motor with steel heads and a steel bell housing, and it weighed 1,500 pounds across the scales. One of the lightest cars out there. Holy smokes. With smart. a steel head motor. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, like... Like, well, you some of the guys are asking me how much do you want to lighten this part? Lighten the Zeus button? Does it float? Nope. Well, then it's not light enough yet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Man, that's great. And I guess uh, you know, last question, uh, kind of what's sitting in the shop right now? Is there anything interesting sitting in there? I know you get your various manufacturing projects going on, but are there any uh, any race cars sitting
2: there? Well, outside of our own little car, I got a little super comp car, and then I think I have a front engine dragster coming in for another hoop. But outside of that, nothing really dramatic. You know, it's kind of nice to be able to have the summer off, you know, when most of these guys now don't want to go into any chassis rework. They want to go racing their car. Uh, the Nitro Moose, I think he's bringing it in here next week before that May race up in Bakersfield. They wants to change the gas pedal arrangement around. But, you know, and that seems to be the biggest deal that I can get done for these guys as a two or three or four-day project working on their hot rod and not have it stuck in shop. For a couple of months.
0: Yeah, it's like paint jail. There's also chassis chop jail, right? And that's the last thing. You don't want the thing sitting there, and they don't want it sitting there for months either.
2: No, no. <laughs> I like my shop. Where it's nice and clean.
0: <laughs> well, Johnny West, thanks so much for taking some time today. It's uh, it's a great uh, great thing to talk to you, and and secondly, it's just a great thing to watch your labor and and the approach you bring to these small teams and try to help them get them on their feet. And it has been proven time and time again that your methods have been successful. So certainly appreciate what you're doing. Can't wait to see you down in Houston with Billy out there, home state race. And you know, I think Billy, with the reduced schedule he's running this year, is uh, is having more fun than he's had in years past, and and that tends to make things more difficult for everybody else.
2: Well, you know, with Torrance, people do not understand where this guy comes from. Steve or his dad, Billy, which is the nucleus of the whole operation, he races Super Comp 2 with an extremely competitive car. I think he won Topeka last year. Yes, he did. this man, he has got the the finances or the, the backing to where he can do anything he wants. And he takes that Super Comp trailer, in a race car out to the racetrack. He sleeps in the trailer on an air mattress for the whole weekend. <laughs> That's now awesome. there's a There is a hardcore racer in that man. And you got to give him all the respect in the world, especially when he doesn't let anything like an Eagle or something, get in the way and put him on a pedestal towards better than anybody. He's just like, he says, I'm just a poor old boy. And this is the way you live.
0: Yeah, I mean, the guy's great. When when he won that first round of uh, race in Gainesville and he pedaled the car and we talked to him at the top end and they asked him, well, what, what were you thinking? He said, well, that was that was damn near terrifying. <laughs> and It's like, it was a great answer. He didn't stand up there and puff his chest out and talk about how great a job he did. He said, I'm hanging on for dear life out there. It was great. <laughs> That's the truth, too. Johnny West, thanks so much, man. Okay, dude. Thank you. Talk about two neat guys that just have had such neat history in the sport and so candid with their answers, and it's just uh, two people I respect immensely for all they've accomplished and really all they continue to accomplish in the world of NHRA drag racing. It's, uh, it's neat to be able to tap into their knowledge and certainly their experience and how they bring all that really to the table to help others. And at this point in their careers, they are the educators of the sport, and that's why this show kind of carries that title. Thanks for listening to this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. Of course, we'll be back next week with a pre-Houston show. We'll kind of get everybody set up for that event. It is going to be unbelievable down there in Houston. It is already talked about basically a pre-sale sold-out event, and it is going to be absolutely insane. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week here on the NHRA Insider Podcast. I'm Brian Loans.